Well, hi there. Welcome to the Manacast, conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name is Matt Anslow and with me as always is Jonathan Cornford. We uh, both work for an organisation called Managum and this is our podcast where we discuss the cross-section of faith, ecology and economy. Uh, today, our topic is co-housing. So this, uh, this topic is inspired by an article that appeared in our last, uh, the last issue of our publication, Manor Matters. It was written by Claire Harvey Dawson, and Claire tells the story of what she calls her co-housing journey, or the co-housing journey of her and her community. And uh, Jonathan, this raises so many, uh, just so many interesting things, I think, that we could talk about. Um, but I guess... I guess the starting point is, what, do you, what is co-housing? What do we mean by that? Uh, okay, co-housing, it's, it's something that's not uh, well known in Australia. So co-housing is a model of building houses. So it's not just, um, doesn't just mean uh, what we might call co-living or sharing the same uh, people sharing a house together. It means a style of building housing, which is essentially uh, building a bunch of close residences they might be uh, joined as in uh, like flats or units they might may be uh, detached and close together but all on a quite closely packed smaller housing residences with some shared space and some shared facilities so the model is that each house each family or each household has their own individual house uh, and which is self-sufficient largely minus a couple of things. So they have basic cooking facilities in, in each residence, but there will usually be a shared laundry for the whole, uh, so a single laundry centre for, for all the housing. They might only have small dining spaces in their houses and a, and a larger communal di- dining uh, space. So the, the model is that, that uh, you can uh, have your own space where you can live reasonably self-sufficiently, but there's an encouragement to communal space and particularly for use of key resources like uh, washing machines and important kitchen stuff uh, and an easier way of doing it. Some some co-housing places include uh, they share a, a spare house too, which uh, is open so the whole community owns and maintains and can... Uh, make available for other people. There usually be shared garden space, shared recreational space as well, things like that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting. They, uh, I've also uh, heard all about how often there's a common house and um, in communities where there's people who are aging, sometimes they use the common house to, to basically employ a nurse for the co-housing uh, community. So very interesting, very interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have any personal experience with co-housing, Jonathan? Look, I don't have any personal experience and not many people in Australia would because there's hardly any here in Australia. So it's a model that's uh, reasonably well known in Europe. There's quite a lot of it in, pl- in places like Denmark and other Scandinavian countries, a little bit in Germany, uh, quite a lot in the west, uh, western coast states of the U.S., uh, but there's only a, a handful in Australia, uh, and it's a model that's been slow to get off the ground here, and we can talk about that. So, but so other than uh, so, I know Claire. Claire is the only person I actually know who's having a go at co-housing. I know of uh, of a couple existing in in Melbourne, but that's it. Yeah, I'm similar. So I haven't 
been a part of a co-housing project of any kind, our family, or at least part of our family, um, Ashley and I lived in a co-living situation for a few years uh, where, you know, some people call them intentional communities. And uh, Evie, our first child, was born into that. But by the time our twin boys were born, we were, we'd moved out of there. So I think it's the same here in New South Wales that it's really difficult to get co-housing projects off the ground. Whereas, as you mentioned before, Jonathan, you know, in, in Europe, these are quite common. I think I've read somewhere that, um, well, co-housing, uh, the modern co-housing movement kind of began in Denmark in about the 1960s, I think. Uh, and I've read that approximately 1% of all Danes live in co-housing uh, currently. So that's, I mean, 1% one, 1 doesn't sound like a lot, but it's quite a staggering amount of people really when you when you think of it. Um, so why do you think it's not common here in Australia? Look, that's a really good question. The, the short answer of, of, of why it's not common here at the moment is there's been some significant barriers to co-housing in Australia. So, uh, and the, the two biggest barriers are councils and banks. So it's generally municipal councils in Australia that regulate that, uh, you know, what sort of housing is allowed and how it's allowed and where it's allowed. Uh, and so councils have compared to in other places in the world, in Australia, been tended to be quite conservative. And that story, that um, really comes through in Claire's story. They had a lot of problems yeah. uh, with their council, uh, just not getting it and really, um, and, and some even quite hostile and suspicious because it seems something new and misunderstanding it. Uh, and banks also, uh, because it's not a model they're familiar with and they're not often that keen to finance thing, uh, experiments, uh, things that they don't think are safe as houses, so to speak. Yeah. And obviously there's a lot of nervousness around people, you know, coming together to have um, joint financial interests. And then if those communities <laughs> fall apart, um, banks don't want to be uh, liable uh, for, or, you know, they don't want to be negatively affected, obviously. And, and, I think most Australians have probably at some point had some problematic run-in with their with their councils. Uh, councils, I think, as a rule, tend to be conservative. And you can understand why. You know, you don't want people just being able to build whatever they want in your neighbourhood. Otherwise, we'd see all sorts of eyesores around the place. But there is... Do you think there's a sense... I mean, I yeah, maybe this isn't a question. Maybe this is more of a statement. I think there's a sense sometimes that... Uh, co-housing and similar kind of setups uh, are thought of as almost like cults. Oh yeah, and that's the I think, and that's pretty much I think the experience that Claire had with her council in in Frankston, uh, and that's where some of the suspicion uh, came from. And so that I guess sheds a, a light on a bigger issue for us in Australia in relation to housing, which is the very limited forms of housing. Uh, that we have here compared to particularly Europe and uh, but also uh, the states. Yeah. So we both, when I say limited forms of housing, that, that that's in two ways. So limited types of physical structure, and we basically tend to have you know the 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 independent single family dwelling on a quarter acre of quarter acre block, which has gotten smaller and smaller over time. Yeah, I was going to say quarter acre. <laughs> that quarter acre is pretty. Uh, that would. Uh, that, that, that's pretty luxury. <laughs> exactly. <That> would, <laughs> but um, or the flat or unit is the other model of. So they're the the 
you know, the, the main models of physical housing. And then the way that we occupy those houses is either by short-term private rental or owning. Uh, we are, Really, they're the two, for most people, the only two options. And they're very limited uh, forms. We don't have long-term secure rental like uh, many other places in the world here in Australia. Yeah. Uh, we, don't, we, we have a very small amount of cooperative housing. There's a little bit in, a, in Melbourne, which is excellent if you can get into it. It's a great model, uh, but uh, it's so limited, it's pretty hard to get into, actually. And so what's cooperative housing in Melbourne? What does that look like? Uh, that's isec- effectively uh, where um, a cooperative owns all the housing and peop- and the, the tenants who are really members of the cooperative, uh, they're in between owners and renters. So they have, uh, they're not quite owners, but they have a lo- approaching the same sorts of freedoms of owners to, to do stuff to the house. Uh, and they have a lot more security than renters. So they, they live there until as, for as long as they want. Yeah. Uh, and you know they have still they have to keep the payments up, which are usually quite uh, not that high. Yeah, it's just a a, a a a different model again. But but that's there's very little of that in Australia. Um, so for most people, it's really the, those two options. So we have a very limited housing imagination in our culture, and in our politics. Uh, so what people are prepared, you know, because we're not used to things, anything new gets treated with a bit of suspicion. I think the legal barriers are also significant, not in the sense that uh, things are necessarily illegal, just that it can be really hard to navigate how you manage these kinds of projects, especially financially. I know when we were setting up the farm, it's quite a, it's a very different thing here, but we were umming and ahhing about whether we buy this property as a uh, individual, like as a family, or whether we set it up as a company so that people could in the future potentially buy in. But that was, I mean, <laughs> look, for some people, they might understand that stuff really easily. It was way above my head. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. I think for people setting up co-housing where you've got, you know, potentially a company that owns the properties and then people have bought into it and, you know, maybe they own their house, but they don't own uh, you know, the property is owned by the company. Uh, it's it's really, it, you know, it can be quite difficult to navigate all that kind of thing as well. But um, look, I mean, I, I think, we, you know, we can see that there's all sorts of issues in Australia in terms of doing this stuff. But why are we talking about it? Like, why is it important to even think about this? Claire talks about it in the article uh, as important for the future in terms of like, ecology. She talks about it as uh, a way of expressing uh, or living out the gospel. Why is co-housing even important to think about? Yeah. Yeah. I guess we probably should have started with that. Hey. Um, yeah. Look, uh, it's one of those things where is a, there's a few thing reasons for doing it and different people might uh, emphasize different parts of the picture. But um, so the different parts of the picture of co-housing are one, I guess you'd say environmental. So uh, the idea that co-housing is essentially a more efficient use of resources and land. So it takes less resor- uh, resources to provide the same sort of quality of, of housing space and laundries and dining rooms and kitchens yeah. and so on to people uh, and the small amount of land to do it. And yet people still get the same or uh, as good or even better amenity out of those things. And of course, not just sharing land, but you can share resources. You only need so many lawnmowers and these kind of things as well. 
Exactly. So it makes makes the, the sharing between houses that much easier too. Um, so there's a whole bunch of resource uh, savings there. Uh, it's uh, also being chosen as a as a mode of living to go against the current of isolation and individualism, which our, is epidemic in our culture. Yeah. So a way of people uh, trying to live closer and with more connection, understanding that their health is bound into uh, being more closely connected with other people, uh, whether in whether that be in intentional or incidental ways, but actually having that uh, that much uh, closer contact uh, uh, relationship with people. Uh, yeah, so th- I guess that would oh, the, the final one would be uh, in particularly in Europe in the states is that it's uh, seen as a more affordable form of housing. Uh, to, to it's uh, a cheaper way to buy. In Australia, that doesn't quite hold yet because the model is new and there's a lot of barriers to it. Actually, the cost hurdles are. Um, reasonably significant, so it doesn't actually yet figure as a more affordable form. But once it, if it became more common, and and the councils, banks, and builders were all more used to it, uh, then the cost of that would drop. Yeah, and there's a sense in which humans have mostly lived in what we're calling co-housing situations uh, throughout history. I mean, we see it as uh, as a novel kind of thing because we've been so atomized in our various Western cultures, but villages were standard for most human societies up until reasonably recently. And so co-housing, I think, is a kind of return to dominant ways of living together, where in the past people were naturally forced together by circumstance and necessity. Uh, nowadays, we're being forced together by you know various housing crises and 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 the price of housing uh, and various environmental issues. And also, as you as you raise, just the amount of loneliness and social isolation in our culture um, that might drive us back together, and we, we might see the wisdom uh, of the past you know become revived again. Yeah, I think so. All those things are inherent in the idea of co-housing. Now, I think it's important for us to say that this is just one model that's Mm, out there and it would be um, we need to be careful not to see it as any sort of answer or panacea to those sorts of things. Uh, But it's one way of responding and it's a creative way and it's got a lot of virtues to it. Uh, But there are also other models of uh, housing out there as well. But yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's one thing we could uh, tri- that's going to would contribute a, a lot of benefits to people, but it's not going to work for everyone. Uh, but it's there's other models that that are available out there as well. It's also not just that it's not a panacea. It's not just that it's not a solution for all of our problems. But one of the critiques of this kind of thing, um, and, and along with other expressions of environmental sustainability, et cetera, like permaculture, is that you you kind of have to have quite a bit of money to get into this kind of thing, right? I mean, hmm. one of the critiques is that this kind of thing is quite middle class. Not everyone can afford to buy land or build a house or set up big gardens or, um, you know, or in my case, like buy a farm. So what would you say to that? How do we ensure that the less well-off members of our communities have the same kinds of opportunities that the middle class might have? Yeah, look, it's a fair critique and, a whole, and you know, I guess similar critiques apply to things like um, ethical consumption yeah, yeah. And, and a bunch of other uh, um, 
you know, growing your own food at home and things like that. Um, look, I, I think there's, there is truth to the critique in, in that certainly for something like co-housing or even if we're looking at uh, just building more sustainable housing, if you're um, looking to, 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 to live in a passive solar house and it's generally only people who've got money to build themselves who can, can do that. Um, yeah, so it's something that's not available to uh, people from uh, who on lower incomes, uh, especially those who are living on welfare, uh, probably not even something that's in their, their frame of reference. Uh, and so that is, I, I guess, a problem for us. Uh, so the, I guess the, the danger is that um, uh, once people start to say, oh, that's just a middle class thing, that, that means you, you write it off with yeah. sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, a snide remark as if the person making that remark wasn't middle class <laughs> themselves. Uh, in some way, even to make that remark. Uh, so um, I think we have to acknowledge that at the moment, things like these really are the privilege of the middle classes. But to some extent, they're not just the privilege, it's maybe the the burden or the vocation of those who do have uh, those sorts of means. Because what Claire and uh, her community members have been trying to do is to pioneer something. They're, they're yeah. cutting the ground uh, to, to try and make uh, another form of housing model uh, more well known in Australia. They're doing, and they're doing, and as her story shows, they're doing some pretty hard yards to do it. Uh, and so what we're going to need is people who are willing to pioneer things in ways that they become more amenable to politics, uh, our political systems to take up. Uh, and what we desperately, desperately need actually is uh is a rethinking of our whole housing system, how we provide housing, especially to the uh, people on lower incomes and people on welfare especially, uh, and the forms of housing that they have. Uh, but to get there, we need people to build some momentum in the first place and to, be, uh, to have some models out there. It's got to start somewhere. And as you say, it's got to start with people who have the means to do it. Um, if it's just left to nobody because, you know, the people who have the means feel guilty and they don't feel like they're allowed to do it. And the people with no means to do it uh, can't do it. You know, it's never going to happen. So I think that's right. One of the things that Claire talks about in her article, I think it's really interesting, is that she talks about co-housing as, and I'll read the quote, she says, it's a scaffolding to enable lives of greater faithfulness to the wide-ranging implications of the gospel. Uh, now, there's so many things we could talk about with that just hmm. short little grab hmm. there. It's a very good little quote. It is. It is. Let's start by just mentioning that for many Christians, that quote would make little uh, sense, uh, uh, especially as it relates to co-housing, because they would say things like justice, creation, care, community, etc., are all good things, and they might be uh, things that come out of you know, our, our lives as Christians, but they're not necessarily components of the gospel. But what Claire's talking about seems to suggest that we need a bigger view of the gospel. Yeah, yeah. And she's, we need a bigger view of, so she's seeing all those things, justice, creation, care, community, uh, as being not something that you do because of the gospel, but actually being part of it. Uh, but more than that, uh, she's pointing to the fact that to be able to live out the gospel, and even I think even to be able to to know from the inside what the gospel is more fully, uh, 
our life needs structures around it to, to help us move into into things. We can't the gospel can't just remain as an idea in our head that is somehow self-contained and independent of the ways in which we live. Uh, it's actually intimately our very knowing of the gospel is intimately bound up with our living out of it, and and that means uh, that means uh, Im- implicates all the structures of our lives. Right? not just how we live in terms of housing, but how we shop, uh, how we work, all of those things. Uh, and so it, I think that for, there's been quite a, a long period where the best Christian thinkers have recognised the structure of our lives, the physical, economic, uh, uh, social structure of our life in, affects our faith, affects how we understand our faith. Uh, and changing the structure of our life can change how we understand uh, our faith as well. Yeah, that word that she uses, uh, scaffolding, is such a fascinating uh, way of putting it, I think. Because what it implies, and, and I think rightly, I think it's quite profound, is that living out the implications of the gospel, living out the implications of our faith, can't just be something that we constantly improvise and make up on the spot. I mean, of course, you know, in the Christian life, there is improvisation, of course, but it can't just constantly be us making it up as we go along because without structures and without habits, we aren't, I, I, I just don't think we're actually able to keep in line with what the gospel requires of us. I don't think gospel faithfulness comes to us all that naturally. Mm. I think we actually need to have uh, intentional commitments, habits, structures in our lives yes. to make it possible to live out the gospel. And that has to happen not just at an individual level, but at a communal level. I mean, this is why we go to church, right? Yeah. Uh, we have church communities in part because we know that we need an institution that keeps us together, keeps us focused, um, and carries us when we can't carry ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess one way of what you're, you're saying there, Matt, is that we can't possibly go through life having to choose at each moment every day uh, what it means to live in in love to God and the rest of humanity and the earth at every point of the day <laughs> as we we go through that to, to go through making those choices. We need things that uh, actually habits, uh, ways of living that are already pre-thought through that guide us through that without having to to rethink it and rechoose it at every moment. There, there are key moments of choice through our life all the time, and they're, they're, they're big enough and important enough, but we can't go through a whole day having to continually make those choices. That's right. And there's a whole tradition of virtue ethics that would say that actually, if we, the, the truly virtuous person is not the person who makes the right choice all the time, but it's the person who has so imbibed those choices that they never have to make the choices anymore. Hmm. That it, it has become a habit uh, and a structure in their life such that they can just do it. And I think that's what co- co-housing actually allows us to be. It allows us to become more virtuous people, not by making us constantly have to choose about the most environmental thing or the thing that is uh, most uh, beneficial for the community ar- around us, but actually it creates a situation in which we are more naturally doing that stuff because we've structured our lives around it. And I think that is really exciting and offers up a lot of possibilities for how we ought to live. Yeah. The, the way the old Catholic worker used to, movement used to put it is we need ways of living that make it easier to be good. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, I, I, I genuinely think that co-housing offers one way of doing that because the ability for us to be around other people of like mind uh, and to create the the physical and habitual structures that allow us to make the right choice. I mean, we've talked about this. So there's probably no need to go over it again. So, okay, well, that probably brings us towards the end of the podcast for today. One of the obvious questions is going to be, how can we possibly do this? We've talked about the the various barriers to co-housing in our culture in Australia, whether it be council or banks or, you know, legal complications. I think one of the other barriers, though, is that the co-housing situations that exist in Australia and the other kind of, you know, the the cousins of co-housing, things like intentional communities uh, and co-living setups, I think when we hear about them and we see them, we tend to often romanticize them. And in romanticizing them, I think what we succeed in doing is making them just that little bit more out of reach for most people because they seem superhuman. Mm. But one of the really beautiful things about what Claire does in her article is to show how their journey so far has been largely one of failure that they have tried to get this model up and running and it hasn't worked, but also that her story and the story of her, um, you know, partners in, in this journey is an unfinished story. One that is ongoing, that they're still trying to get this project up and happening. I think maybe that gives us a bit of hope that, you know, while also saying it's difficult or, that we don't all have to have it together, that we can continually be working at these kinds of things uh, bit by bit in the hope that one day God is going to bring about something beautiful in our labor. Yeah, and I look, I think that's one of the real virtues of Claire's story and why I was keen for us to, to publish it in Man of Matters is because it, it's a gritty story about real life. And, and so often when uh, we hear, um, you know, stories about uh, either community or witness or mission or whatever, uh, uh, they're framed as success stories. Uh, and uh, and I know from having written some things myself, so it's really hard to tell the truth about things well sometimes mm. uh, uh, to really convey. Uh, it, it, it's even without meaning to, often you can write, uh, about some of your own experiences as successes when actually uh, the real experience of them has been more um, ambiguous or harder, you know, and there's other stuff mixed up in it. Uh, so Claire, I think, has done that really well. And uh, the virtue of it is um, we get to see someone struggling with something, but we see someone who is really having a go at pioneering something at, uh, at some personal cost to themselves uh, and, and I think there's something important uh, in, in, in Claire letting us see into that a, a little bit. Uh, and there's also a virtue in it. We get it. This story is still going, ongoing, as Claire's quite clear. Yeah. Uh, virtue of being an unfinished story, which is, you know, to some extent, that's the story of our lives up until <laughs> uh, the day we die is that we're all unfinished stories. And, you know, it's a big part of actually our understanding the gospel is that um, 
in a in a, it's it's an unfinished story. Uh, so Christian, what we call eschatology, how we think about what the final vision of things uh, means that we're, we're we're always bound into this expectation of something that hasn't happened yet, that we're not there yet, uh, and that we're always uh, at the moment in this experience of. Uh, the difficult and struggling and suffering world, uh, and we're we're an unfinished story. The world is an unfinished story. Uh, so yeah, look, I, I really give full credit to Claire and her uh, colleagues for what they're doing, but also her preparedness to write about it quite honestly. Um, so I really encourage people to to have a read of her story. Yeah, and maybe that is the most important thing in terms of thinking about how could we possibly do this. Maybe the first step is just to read the story and then to start talking about this kind of thing. Because it might not be physically possible for most people to do this kind of thing yet, uh, but by talking about it, we start to sow the seeds of possibility, of imagination, of dreaming, and that kind of thing. Well, thanks for listening to the Manacast, folks. We'll be back next time to talk about imagination and what it might have to do with us resisting uh, normalized destruction in our world. If you want to read Claire's story that we've been talking about during this uh, episode, you can find it at the Managum website, uh, managum.org.au, and you'll find it in the Manor Matters tab. Catch you next time.